All right, what was I supposed to do on the ninth? Oh, the role model. Right. Well, uh, the stealing barbecues uh, is uh, is important stuff, and um, I um, I'm, I'm I'm very much leaning on uh, bell hooks uh, when it comes to uh, today's class um, because I think um, part of what the show tries to do. Bell Hooks does in a bunch of her writing. Um, it's part of the paradox of being a marginalized group, seeking respectability. And um, it's, um, it's interesting, right? First of all, isn't it amazing that uh, Ricky can get the gig with the junior achievers? Now, now let's let's just start there. How is it that um, Ricky can um, be engaged in telling marginalized kids how to be less marginalized? Um, what's going on there? Well, of course, one of the first things about being a role model in a community is um, having labor to spare. Um, charity work involves um, a flexibility of time, if not an abundance of time. And um, so we see this with our, uh, our Cub Scout leaders, um, our, uh, our, our, our Rotarians, um, that uh, usually when people appoint themselves role models in a community, first of all, that's, that's a fairly audacious thing to do, right? Uh, to decide that uh, the young people should model their lives on yours. Um, and so, of course, the first thing that allows Ricky to cross this threshold and become a role model is his lack of self-consciousness, right? That a normal member of the underclass would feel unentitled to work with the junior achievers. Uh, that normally a petty criminal um, would judge themselves. But one of the things we see when Ricky appears in court or when he talks to the cops is that because his consciousness is so problematic, he isn't signaling to himself that what he's saying is illegitimate. And I remember uh, when um, the Green Party of British Columbia was being taken over and um, um, the tactics that were used in the final year were really quite amazing. So um, Adrian Carr just hired two full-time staff at her charity um, to make a series of allegations of criminality against uh, the people she wanted removed. So in all, the nine-member board, we were accused of 14 different indictable offenses, falsely. Theft, fraud, rape, assault, uh, child porn. Um, I was accused on live radio of uh, dislocating a baby's arm, uh, like ripping the shoulder out of the socket. Um, and I hired a lawyer. It's like, we're being constantly libeled. Like, what should we do? And so the lawyer got to work on this libel case, and I put down a $5,000 retainer, and that was like my life savings. And after about six weeks, he said, Stuart, we will never make it through discovery. And here's why. Because when we demonstrate that something that's been said is a falsehood, they don't argue. They accuse us of three new falsehoods. We will never even be able to make it through discovery. We'll be stuck in discovery forever. We'll never make it to trial. Um, now, uh, these are extraordinary people because when they did appear in court, they, they sued us over something else. Um, uh, so, uh, um, uh, some of you know my friend Alana, um, 
so uh, when when um, Andrea Reimer and John Richardson appeared in court, they stated that Alana had violently assaulted them, beaten the shit out of them um, when they had come to look at the membership list. And the thing was, they said this with absolute sincerity. And one of the things about our legal system is that it's very contingent on the liberal self. Uh, it's very contingent on our self-surveillance, right? When Michel Foucault talks about the panopticon, when he talks about a surveillance society, he's not referring to the state's mechanisms of technological or physical surveillance. He is talking about the fact that we have been inculcated with a consciousness that is self-surveilling on behalf of the state all the time. That uh, epitomized in the title sequence for the original Twin Peaks with the traffic light at the T intersection in the middle of nowhere where there are never any cars. And people stay at the red light until it turns green because the liberal self is a self-surveilling self. And so when you confront people in the context of like a modern libel proceeding, um, you see the same things happen as happened with Donald Trump when he's confronted in court. He's really impossible to deal with in court because he possesses no consciousness of guilt in the moment. He will say whatever he wants or needs to say. And what we rely on in court is people justifying other falsehoods they've said defending themselves. We look for physical signs of anxiety, of stuttering, of tripping over your words. There are all of these ways where we rely on the physical tells of other people's consciousness of guilt in order to regulate the truth. Well, Ricky's superpower is, of course, that he only has consciousness of guilt after the fact. Ricky never has consciousness of guilt or falsehood in the moment. And so very quickly we can see how it is that Ricky could become a junior achievers leader. Uh, because all of the signs that you would look for in a respectability-focused bourgeois volunteer gig like that, Ricky would convey there would be no uncertainty in anything he said. There would be no desire to defend a previous claim he had made. Um, he would just be there in the moment. So somehow, Ricky gets this junior achievers gig, which he's quite excited about because it lets him spend time with his daughter, whom he truly loves. And um, once he gets the gig, then, of course, he can let the kids know about the barbecue remarketing plan. Um, and that euphemism there is wonderful because one of the things that's interesting about Ricky, right, is, and Julian, right, is that they can proof text from capitalism. They can use these little justifying phrases, right? So the idea of role models, that's good. I think I often quote Ricky in other contexts um, because I actually think this is uh, one of the greatest distillations of the sort of kleptocratic order capitalism is now fully embraced, where he goes, well, really, it's just the same whether you're breaking the law or not. Profit capital, supply and command. And, uh, yeah, you sort of look around... Uh, I can't think of a better way of describing Amazon. Uh, are they breaking the law or not? Who knows? Profit capital, supply and command. So, um, uh, so he gets this gig, and of course, much hilarity ensues. Um, where it's interesting, right, where he's modeling how to be a successful capitalist. And his error in modeling it is actually his success at modeling being a successful capitalist because 
an unsuccessful capitalist wouldn't steal from people inside the park. Right, Ricky, I've told you no stealing from people inside the park. Here we see capitalism on a direct collision course with the ethos of reciprocity that Carol Stack describes in um, uh, The Underclass, that um, you don't view the people you know and care about as market objects. Um, and it's Ricky's decision to see Randy and Mr. Leahy as market objects rather than old school enemies that causes him to go over the line. Ricky does all kinds of bad things to Mr. Leahy uh, and Randy, but to use a phrase from a later season, he does not cross the shit line. And stealing Randy's barbecue clearly presages the crossing of the shit line. Uh, now, back to bell hooks. So, um, I found uh, the writing of Bell Hooks extraordinarily helpful in my um, attempts to survive some very difficult things uh, seven years ago when I returned to Vancouver. Um, because she anatomized a problem I still wrestle with all the time. Um, so, I am a product of a... of uh, arguably the most respectable black family in British Columbia. Um, they're um, really uh, all but one of my sort of uh, immediate uh, family, my aunts and uncles and mother, um, my uncle Barton died. It was on the front page of the paper. Uh, when my uncle Harry died, it was not just on the front page of our paper. It was on the front page of the paper in Guam. Um, when, uh, and, uh, every Black History Month, I get to see my mother on TV and in the newspaper, um, as a role model of the Black community. Um, and, uh, of course, my uncle Harry, uh, Right, the act of commemorating him as the epitome of the black role model transcends generations now. Um, right, there's a celebration of his death every year, there's a celebration of his birth every year, um, and uh, there's an endless stream of stories. And um, they are bootstrap narratives of my uncle, um, the fact that his mentally disabled brother made the front page of the paper when he died indicates how big that halo is. Now, um, when I got back to Vancouver, um, I had some very challenging stuff to deal with with my family. Um, and uh, while I was dealing with that, um, the then, I guess, epitome of living black respectability in BC, Leon Bibb, approached me to write his authorized biography. So uh, if you want to know who Leon Bibb used to be, um, if you find the edition of Life magazine that covered the second march on Selma, the cover photo is of Joan Baez, Harry Belafonte and Leon Bibb singing Joe Hill. Uh, when Leon turned 65, and here we now start circling in our wide, out, widest outer orbit uh, where we're going, he was um, invited to, uh, he, he was flown out to New York for a surprise birthday party hosted by Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, and Bill Cosby. Uh, now, I was, um, because of some of the things I confronted in Vancouver when I arrived in 2011, 
after I got this agreement to write the authorized biography, I had some postdoctoral funding to do some research. So I headed off to the Midwest. And I spent most of my time researching um, the liberal Peace Church Mormons in Kansas City, the Community of Christ. They're a fascinating bunch. Um, they've adopt, they have a snail-shaped temple referred to as the Christ Slide. Uh, where Jesus is going to land at the top and slide down at the eschaton. Um, they also have copied bizarre parts of Sunni Islam. So um, at 11 o'clock in the morning, um, they all kneel and face Kansas City and pray for world peace. Um, cool bunch. But uh, I also went out to this region of the sort of uh, southern Midwest. Um, to interview Leon Bibb's relatives in Louisville, Kentucky, where he was from. Now, Leon had not lived in Kentucky since the 1950s. And he had many beautiful and extraordinary stories about growing up in Kentucky. Um, he had known Cassius Clay as a young man. Um, Muhammad Ali's father was a street painter. And, uh, Leon tells a funny story, or told a funny story, of, um, of uh, meeting uh, Muhammad Ali in the 80s and calling him by the wrong name. Uh, and you know, being, there, of course, he was never spoken to again. Uh, and, um, but Leon was in many, he really carried on a proper black oral tradition kind of performance. He was a great singer, but more importantly, he was a great raconteur. And like any true practitioner of an oral tradition, contrary to some of the mythology that we generate in the present, to assist in some land claims processes, the great thing about an oral tradition is that it always recounts the past while meeting the needs of the present. Uh, you can't maintain an oral tradition without also always meeting the needs of the present. And Leon had a particular story that I loved. Um, it was the Mrs. Harris story. That was his grandmother's name. And it was a story of Mrs. Harris and the local insurance salesman. And, um... I always, you always knew what the last line of the story was going to be. Mrs. Harris was going to say, my name is Mrs. Harris. But um, the story was a true parable in that um, it could be used to teach many lessons. And I always looked forward to the Mrs. Harris story because there was never a time it was told that it did not contain a new detail that had never previously contained. Um... So I was always rooting for the, the, so I have a, one of my best friends in the world, Jeff Ranger, one of the reasons he's like one of my best friends in the world is that mysteriously, despite being raised in a white family, um, he epitomizes this tradition in his storytelling performance. You always want to hear the Bill Clinton story because there will always be an element of Jeff Ranger's Bill Clinton story that you've never heard before that will reveal the story as meaning a whole new thing and delivering a whole new richness um, to the experience of probably never having met Bill Clinton. I, I think the story was actually generated because we had a friend who was a very bad storyteller who did meet Bill Clinton and he never generated a story. And I think that this grievance eventually developed into the apocryphal Bill Clinton story. Uh, so, nevertheless, I, I interviewed Leon for hours, as had his previous biographer who had grown frustrated with him, Vera Rosenbluth. And so I have um, hours of recordings and hundreds of pages of Leon Bibb's testimony about his extraordinary life, about how Paul Robeson was the godfather of his children, um, about, um, there's this incredible moment where somehow in the story, Paul Robeson gets to the hospital before him. Like, none of these questions are ever answered, but it, it's all very compelling. And of course, you want someone there who is directly connected to Paul Robeson, the last great black Marxist of the American public square. 
So took a lot of notes and I got from Leon a lot of family contacts in Louisville. Um, there are many stories I wanted to check up on, like his brother, uh, older brother being a uh, organized crime boss and heroin addict who had died very young and was very fashionably dressed. Um, the, uh, how his, uh, uh, the extraordinary poverty of his family, uh, all of these, these amazing details um, that were used to illustrate very important things about American life. But of course I got to Kansas City and I realized that I would have to wait for Leon to die to write the book. Uh, because in Louisville, I discovered from his relatives that this was just a pack of lies. Um, and that because he hadn't seen them in so long, nobody who was witness to these stories had been able to exert any pressure on him to in some way tack back to events that were in people's shared memories. So it turns out that Leon's older brother um, was an alcoholic who died in his 50s who delivered books to the disabled from the library on a bicycle. Um, an equally compelling story, but one that contained no shared elements with Leon's stories about his brother. Uh, and um, of course, his family grew increasingly hostile the longer I was there because they felt that they had been defamed in various ways by these stories that had been told uh, in British Columbia for decades. Um, they were actually the richest black family in Louisville. Um, they were actually politically sophisticated people who had manipulated the 1922 election, the year Leon was born, by splitting the fusion vote. Um, and they, they owned the funeral parlor, et cetera, et cetera. And these were also interesting people. Um, now, the thing is that uh, Leon Bibb's a nice man. Um, and his uh, main career in retirement was doing anti-racism workshops um, in, for elementary school children, uh, where he would sing and tell stories, some of which were true. Uh, and um, I, I was, I, it was an honor to know him. It's an honor to have this tattered piece of paper authorizing this biography no one will be happy about. Uh, but it opened my consciousness to something important that bell hooks anatomizes. So one of the central contradictions you have to face as marginalized people is that when the level of oppression you're feeling or experiencing ticks down a notch, and, and here, uh, you know, again, uh, RT, I really recommend you read the Kathleen Flake book because it's about this too. It's about Reed Smoot constantly lying in the Senate hearings because America's finally agreed to see to Mormon uh, in the Senate. Like the intolerance has finally dropped down a notch. And uh, this, um, and people don't know how to adapt. But who are the people who do adapt when you become just a little bit less oppressed? Well, the people you push to the fore are the bullshitters because your people have been denied education, money, political rights, etc. You're a fucking shambles. You've, uh, you've had the shit kicked out of you by capitalism and white supremacy and imperialism. And most people are in fucking rough shape. And the first thing they do when they have a moment to breathe where they're not just like struggling to stay alive is they collapse. That's a normal reaction to things being dialed down. But really from the beginning, and uh, Booker T. Washington talks about this after slavery, right? 
who were the people who entered the legislatures under Reconstruction? Who were the first black preachers? Who were the first Mormons to be seated in the Senate, etc.? They were the craziest, greasiest liars you could find. And there are a few reasons for that. One has to do with the fact that people who are like that can, through practices of predation and the oppression of their peers, acquire power even in systems that starve their group of power. So who's going to be on top on the plantation? Who's going to be on top when the federal grand jury is jailing uh, 20 men a day for polygamy? Who is, who's going to be holding on to that little bit of power while you're under martial law. Pretty fucking problematic people, generally. That's who's going to be doing that. Those people then have a head start when the oppression lets up a little bit because they've already been conserving a disproportionate amount of the power in their society. Well, then what happens? Well... There are a lot of people who are very eager to re-enslave you, to kick you out of the Olympics, to take away the vote, um, right? They're, uh, you know, we could absolutely narrate women's suffrage in the 20s into this. Uh, the people who wanted to retract the flapper vote, re-raise the voting age for women, um, not not let them compete. So you, you have that, and so... And what's the justification? Well, it's the justification we have for abducting indigenous children today, right? Oh, those poor children. You know, they come from a society that's been damaged by colonialism. They come from a society with all of these internalized abuse dynamics and, uh, and, and, and uh, addiction and uh, trauma. You know, their, their parents are not safe people to be with. We had really better abduct these indigenous children to save them from the way we oppressed them in the past by abducting them, uh, right? So, so the oppressor is very eager to say, all right, you know what? You weren't ready for this freedom. You weren't ready for the vote. You weren't ready for the 400 meters. Uh, you, you weren't ready to practice your religion on your own. We're really sorry that we like faced you with a challenge of being fully human, and uh, you uh, you weren't up to it. Uh, we can fix that. Now, of course, there's a shared interest by all of the people in that oppressed group, a strange solidarity that comes over you to go, all right, well, we, we don't want to go back. That's unacceptable. We all know that whatever else we might disagree about, however we might all be different, however problematic the person standing next to me is right now, we can't go back. What we have to do instead is say to the oppressor, no, 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 we're fine. We are fine. This hasn't fucked us up at all. We are 100% totally A-OK. -okay. And uh, you don't have to worry at all. And who are the people who sell that message? The people who sell that message are the bullshitters, the liars, the fraudsters, the, 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 the oppressors within a society. And they are your role models. Now, initially, the role model discourse is outward focused. So, initially, in um, marginalized communities, everybody knows that the role models are bad people. Everybody knows that the role models have been chosen because of how crazy they are, not how well they are. But there is a shared social solidarity that no one is letting that information out, that everybody is going to pretend that Martin Luther King is the model of sexual continence and marital fidelity. 
Uh, and the number of people who are willing to be in on that fraud is off the fucking charts because the community has created an outward focused role model who can protect them from the hammer coming down again. Now, what Bell Hooks observes, of course, is that there is a cost. There is a terrible, terrible cost. Uh, and that cost is, of course, incarnate in Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby is the thing you get and the price you pay. Uh, this model of articulate, sweater-wearing respectability with a doctorate. Um, the problem is that by stating that this person is infallible and healthy and safe, you strip away your own community's tools to protect itself from their predation. And, uh, uh, and this means that in communities that are engaged in supporting these outward focused role models, um, the cost is paid in tremendous violence that recoils on that community. In, uh, but there is a second phase, uh, which is, um, and I, I talk about this largely when I talk about theories of landscape and indigeneity, but the problem is that if you run a hustle for too long, you hustle yourself. You start believing the bullshit that you're putting out there about these people. And that, of course, makes you even more vulnerable. Now, what all of this does is it hits the Southern strategy in 68 in terms of how um, one can make this worse because yes, the Southern strategy was focused on black people, but it's, I want to make very clear that contemporary role model discourse in all societies that touched America in the seventies is tainted by the way that the Southern strategy re-theorized role models. How is it that a particular political plan um, to flip some states in the Electoral College for the Republican Party um, could turn into this very strange contagion? Well, of course, it's because of the ideology that the Southern strategy was used to implement. And that ideology is neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is, of course, a rejection of collective theories of selfhood, of collective theories of uh, success, of collective ideas about economic gains, right? It's the restoration of original liberalism and its profound, profound individualism and suspicion of social solidarity. So the big issue when the Southern strategy first comes into effect is busing, it's school integration. So why does the Supreme Court bring in busing? Well, it's because uh, until the Carter presidency, schools are funded through um, school trusts and school districts. So the money is raised through local property taxes. And this begins, this is like the first uniquely American institution. This begins in Delaware in 1713. It exists before the United States. The idea that schools are not a universal social program, they're a buyer's club for people in a geographic polygon. And so you tax your neighbors to send kids to school. Great plan. The states sometimes come in and help the schools out. But when Reconstruction happens in the South, um, after the Civil War, um, of course, uh, the neighborhoods where there are black people and black schools 
very low property values. You can't really get the money out of local schools. So state governments have to step in. And state governments during Reconstruction think it's very, very important to not integrate the schools. Why? Because the children are members of the Klan and they're beating and murdering black kids in their classes. Uh, you need segregated schools as a premise for black people being educated in the South in the 1870s so they don't die. So what happens is this geographic basis for education is really set in stone and then state government subsidies to help out become necessary. Well, of course, Reconstruction ends, Jim Crow begins, darkness falls, and the states pull out. And so you get a situation, or rather they pull out of black schools, so that by the 1920s, the per student funding for um, white versus black kids in America is 80 to 1. Uh, this makes it extraordinarily difficult to educate black people. So how does America solve that during the second reconstruction in the 60s? Busing. They don't want to break the neighborhood district-based school funding system. So the only way they can equalize school funding for black versus white children is to integrate the schools and put white kids in black schools and black kids in white schools so that white supremacist governments won't cut school funding because it will harm some of their white citizens. So one of the most important things to recognize about integration is that it was a material strategy. It was a strategy that the courts devised to equalize funding. The courts never articulated the view that white people have a right to be in a racially diverse classroom. They never articulated the view that black people have a right to be in a racially diverse classroom. But the discourse of diversity was seized by the Republicans for the Southern strategy. Because integration was clearly working, because it was popular, because literacy rates were rising, crime rates were falling, because integration was a runaway success from any empirical standpoint, there was no way, unless you were Joe fucking Biden, um, that you could just stand up in the Senate and say, uh, you know what, uh, this integration is really problematic. We can't have these children near each other. Otherwise, you'd be branded as a Southern Democrat like Joe Biden um, for, for clearly just being a fucking bigot. So the Reagan Republicans had a much more intelligent rejoinder, which was to offer an alternative explanation for why black children were now doing so much better. It wasn't because the money for their schooling had increased 80-fold. It was because they were surrounded by role models. Look at all these white children demonstrating for black children how to be punctual and well-dressed and responsible. And once that got going, this is when we start seeing people, school programming, telling people to bring in your dad so your dad talks about how successful he is at work, to bring in role models from the community, to have police officers in the school showing people to be good role models. The idea of the school as theater for role model really comes out of this. And it is, of course, leavened by Bill Cosby himself. This is the ideology of the Cosby show. If you just see, like, the thing that's wrong with the black community is a thing the black community needs to fix for itself by having more sweater-wearing doctors and lawyers. 
if we if our kids just had role models all of our problems of colonialism and racism and internalized oppression will disappear and of course the rebuttal was finally issued by Hannibal Buress um, in one of his many routines he's a hugely underestimated thinker where finally Hannibal Buress has had enough of this by like 2015 and he says yeah, so I hear Bill Cosby is saying, pull your pants up, black people. I had a sitcom in the 80s. And then he says, yeah, it's true, but you're a rapist. And uh, that is really a distillation of the role model discourse, right? That um, the role model is some kind of liar and criminal and fraudster who's actually the one endangering your kids. Uh, and um, this is, I think, a lot of what Trailer Park Boys is playing with. Because, of course, everybody... Because Bill Cosby's argument was more convincing to non-black people than it was to black people. Uh, the idea that role models, the lack of role models was what was going wrong in a white working class community seemed far easier a thing to believe than the idea that the lack of role models was, was wrecking black communities. Um, and so in this way, um, right, we've all gone in for role model discourse. I, I mean, I used to, uh, this was the whole premise of the Junior Black Achievement Awards. This was the BC Association of Black Educators. Uh, this is the Harry Jerome Awards. Um, my family is deeply, deeply implicated in this. My mother goes to an auction every year, and it's a role model auction. People bid on having lunch with their role model. Uh, my mother goes with Carol James, the finance minister. Um, and I, uh, there's a lot of shit I'm not saying, so I will just say the one small thing. It's perfect because what it shows is that there's a role model solidarity there. There is a permissive solidarity among the role model quasi-class of a community. And what Ricky lacks is that solidarity. Ricky lives in a community that will make him accountable for his behavior as a putative role model. And that is how it all comes crashing down with the barbecues. And I think that this is not an episode that speaks well of Ricky, but it speaks very well of Sunnyvale. Uh, that this is a community I mean, we hear sort of the dark side of that with, fuck community college, let's get drunk and eat chicken fingers. But if fuck community college, let's get drunk and eat chicken fingers is your anthem, it sure protects you from role models who are arguably the very most dangerous people we know. Absolutely. What's interesting is it tells us how few tools we actually have to signal to ourselves that people are lying. That their, their knowledge that they're lying is our handle on them. And if they lack that knowledge, you can collect all kinds of evidence, you can do all kinds of things, but if they don't have that consciousness of guilt, they are pretty much unstoppable. Yeah, I'm, I'm noticing um, RT's uh, Seinfeld quote, the great Costanzaism. Remember, Jerry, if it, it's a, not a lie if you really believe it. But the role model's discourse, it distorts the discourse next to it because the flaws of the role model have to be referred to the people orbiting them. And I think there are two levels to that. Um... RT, go first, and then I'll talk about the levels. Yeah, so I think the level that you're going to touch on is what is... Okay, so this ties back to the, the Angolan Portuguese youth justice or junior achiever 
instructor. I'm helping the kids get smarter. And she probably looks at him and says, this guy does not look the part, but they wouldn't let him be junior achiever boss if he wasn't a role model, right? People might know that Bill Cosby's a fucking rapist, but they think, well, they wouldn't let him be Bill Cosby and go on the show with those kids and hear the darndest things if he was skeezy, if he was greasy, right? Like, you kind of know, but then you subsume it under a little bit and think, well, I'm in the circle. They wouldn't let me be here with them if they were what I think they are. And so, and that goes also to the, the, uh, the Foucault's uh, panopticon, the liberal self, uh, surveilling itself to maintain the status quo. Yeah, there's, um, so, um, I think that, um, I really, like, um, Slavo Zizek, weird dude, but the good intellectual contributions he has made have been invaluable. And, I, um, I'll never forget the way, because I didn't see Children of Men, I didn't read the movie review. Like, the fact that a philosopher can arise to international prominence by reviewing a movie um, was also weird. Um, especially because, in fact, they'd done the same thing in Itumama Tambien uh, 15 years earlier um, and been reviewed extensively. But leaving that aside, right, the moment where Zizek appears in my consciousness is after the insane Rumsfeld speech during the Iraq war. And Rumsfeld is actually like engaged in an epistemological intervention. Like, of course, it's not like the mass torture and murder of Iraqis that loses him his job. Um, it's the fact that he tries to do epistemology on television. That's the end of Rumsfeld. Because it's like, well, why? You said we would be welcomed as liberators. You said all these things. None of it's working. He goes, well, that's because of the, uh, the unknown unknowns. You see, there are known knowns, which are things that you know that you know. And then there are known unknowns, where there are things that you know that you don't know. But then there are the unknown unknowns, where you don't know how many things you don't know. And... That's really the problem. We didn't know how many things we didn't know. And Zizek then intervenes and he goes, well, actually, and it's funny because he's saying this at the moment, the truth he's telling you is becoming obsolete because he's from Croatia during the Cold War, right? And he's describing that regime when he is, uh, sorry, Slovenia, quite right. Um, he's describing that regime. Um, I've been thinking too much about Radovan Karadzic. That's why I've got Croatia on my mind. Um, so he, um, uh, so he says, um, well, actually, uh, looking at Abu Ghraib, the problem is not the unknown unknowns. It's the unknown knowns. It's the things that you know that you don't know you know. And he talked about torture in the East Bloc because the power of torture in Latin America and in Eastern Europe during the Cold War came from the fact that the state was always denying it was participating in torture. The state was always gaslighting you and telling you no torture was going on, but you all lived in mortal fear that you were going to be abducted and tortured because the torture became more terrifying and more sinister because you couldn't talk about it. You couldn't acknowledge it in your consciousness. And because it could not be acknowledged, its hegemony grew. The power behind it grew, right? People who've been in relationships with narcissists, right? That, that you can't admit that you're frightened of the person you're in the relationship with. They're the best person in the world and their power over you comes from the fact that this is an unknown known. Everyone knows and no one knows. And it's that double consciousness that produces the terror. 
of course, post Abu Ghraib, it all changed, right? Torture in the Trump administration or in Brazil is now theater of cruelty. We're back to the Baroque auto de fe that, um, that the terror is performative. Uh, but the category of the unknown known, like in terms of Donald Trump not being a rapist, like because he was publicly a rapist, but Donald Trump being a child molester, the reason that that was powerful was because it was an unknown known. You could just watch him with his daughter or read things that he'd said about her or hear things that she said about him, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you said, didn't you also, like, weren't you one of the 17 million people who just watched him French kiss her on national TV? That was impermissible. That was you being crazy because that was an unknown known. Um, and uh, I, like, it's, uh, people have done a lot of work on repression. Um, there's been a lot of social psych coming out of France, but I think all through the Cold War. But I think in the English-speaking world, it's the Slovenian who actually captured um, how that works in the consciousness. And, in fact, one of the reasons you don't fire the child molester coach is because you're afraid of him. Because what the unknown known does is it allows you to see in him whoever has perpetrated violence upon you because it is a subconscious connection that, uh, that that person they're performing all this virtue and all this niceness and all this kindness, but the other part of the performance is controlling you more than the lies they're telling. That the, the reason you're acting like you believe those lies is because they remind you of the most frightening thing you've ever seen. 